Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, North Carolina's House and Senate leaders reach an agreement on the budget. A tough week for President Biden's agenda and the impact of the supply chain crisis on the economy. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, political analyst Joe Stewart, Democratic State Senator Sidney Batch, Jay Chaudhry, the Democratic Whip in the Senate, and Nelson Dollar, Senior Advisor to North Carolina Speaker House. Nelson, why don't we begin with the General Assembly's week? Yes, House and Senate leaders did reach an agreement this week on the state budget. The two-year budget sets a number of records. Over $3 billion in tax reductions for individuals and businesses, $4.2 billion in the savings reserve, $6.4 billion in a multi-year investment in capital projects, and that includes $800 million for local schools, $2.7 billion for universities, and capital projects with community colleges, over $2 billion for local projects, airports, parks, all kinds of local economic development projects all across the state, $400 million for disaster relief, including relief for Hurricane uh, Fred, $5.7 billion in state recovery funds with record investments in broadband, water and sewer infrastructure across the state, environmental projects, education, and of course, economic development. State employees and teachers on the biennium will see, receive a 4% raise, retirees will receive a bonus, uh, and also, we have pay raises uh, for those who are serving uh, aged and disabled, and that's a really critical uh, health and human services piece. Okay. This budget really represents a once-in-a-generation investment in our state, improving our economy, education, uh, health care, and our quality of life. Jay, you have the floor. What was left on the table? Well, I think there are going to be a number of things left on the table once um, the House and the Senate leadership start engaging Governor Cooper and Senate and House Democrats. And uh, I think there's reasons to be optimistic because I know there have been ongoing conversations between staff and at the principal level. And I think there will be negotiations in good faith. But to you know, answer your question, Mark, I think a couple of things. Uh, whether you can have guardrails on tax cuts, for example, so if the economy goes south, can you put something in measure to prevent those tax cuts going in place? I think uh, we have a constitutional obligation to provide a sound basic education, how much money is going to go towards that, for example. Um, and then I would say uh, there are a number of bad policy provisions in the bill, too. There are some provisions that take the powers away from the governor and the attorney general, so I think it's a question of whether those policy provisions are removed. And, and lastly, I would say there's the issue of Medicaid expansion and uh, whether, they, whether there will be Medicaid top expansion. Top issue support. for the governor. I think top issue for the Sydney. governor. Sydney. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that they did, that the House, we haven't seen the budget, to be clear, but based on what Nielsen just said, I think one of the aspects which is really great is the expansion, partially, of Medicaid expansion, allowing 12 months post um, postnatal care for women with children, but that doesn't go far enough, and we know that we need to go ahead and talk about expanding health care for more individuals. Um, with regards to the executive powers, one of the issues as well is that whether or not, you know, we have a, a government, he was just elected, we have branches of government that are actually supposed to do their job, that is an issue because while we fared much better in North Carolina with regards to the COVID, with regards to deaths, and also with regards to the loss of jobs, the governor did a, a remarkable job with regards to navigating us through these uncharted territories. And to remove that power in the budget is not an appropriate process. Do it in a separate bill, see what we deal with that. But it doesn't actually deal with table uh, top issues that people deal with every single day in their families. Joe, put this in context. Well, this is an interesting way to handle a budget. We don't typically see the legislature go to the governor first and say, hey, what can we work out? It's usually usually presented to the governor who either signs it or doesn't sign it. So we'll have to see how that part of the process works. It's a little uh, untilled soil, and it's not entirely clear if the governor is unhappy with some significant part of the budget, what do legislative leaders do? Are they able to compromise in good faith with the governor in the hopes they can come back to the legislature for a final vote that everyone can agree, Democrat and Republican, is the right package for taxes and spending? Nelson, are you optimistic the governor will sign this? I'm very optimistic. I mean, you cannot leave on the table the billions of dollars that are going into health and human services and the billions uh, that are going into projects that impact broadband, education, that impact every citizen in this state. You can't leave that on, on the table. And I do think the, the governor will either sign or we'll have an override. Okay, I want to change topics, talk about Washington. It's been a very tough week for President Biden's agenda up in Washington. Yeah, President Biden, who ran for election on Build Back Better, this idea that the United States needed to make significant investment in the sort of traditional infrastructure that we think of bridges and highways and uh, airlines, but also in health care, child care, provision of uh, what we generally refer to as the social safety net uh, in uh, the United States. Uh, this week, a, a package that the Senate had approved as sort of the conventional uh, infrastructure investments of a billion dollars was part of what the House wanted to leverage for the bigger infrastructure, the social programs and health care spending, $3.5 billion. Yeah. Then it was discussion whether that number was too big trillion, for... Trillion. Trillion. I'm sorry, yeah. for trillion. Excuse me. Yeah. Trillion. <laughs> what was I thinking? Only a billion? Billion? That would be silly. That's Only a billion. Billions at the state. <laughs> so Joe Manchin from West Virginia uh, said he thought that number was too big and said this week uh, maybe uh, $1.5 would be a, a size big enough. But progressives in the House are disagreeing with that. They feel like this is their one chance to try to handle the package. And so it's all kind of devolved into a back and forth. We'll, we'll see what can be worked out in terms of the negotiation between the House and the Senate, but also among the Democrats in the House, the more progressive right. Democrats and the more centrist Democrats. Is AOC, Jay, holding all the cards? No, I don't think she's holding all the cards. I think uh, she's I think pretty dug in the progressives. There's about 60 Democrats in the House. Well, I, th I think we're really early on. I mean, I think we've got a front row seat to legislative sausage making, which is always ugly. I think when you're trying to pass big legislation within majorities, it can be uh, tough. I mean, I think one thing um, I would not count out is Speaker Pelosi and, and Leader Schumer trying to get this bill done. Uh, the fact of the matter is interesting. I think there's a lot of media coverage on the dissent between progressives and 
uh, and moderates well, the in the Democratic Party. Controversy now. They, they do, but <laughs> important point, if you actually look at how House Democrats have voted, right. 200 out of three, 203 out of 223 Democrats have voted 100% with Biden's agenda. And if you take, and 201 of 223 have voted 90% with Biden's agenda. So I think there's reason to be optimistic about Nelson, agenda. your take on this, uh, this package. Well in, well, in 2017, Republicans couldn't unite around a replacement for Obamacare. Now, in 2021, Democrats cannot unite around uh, an ambitious domestic agenda. The country itself is divided. The economy's in transition, and this is a wrong Isn't time. Is it inflationary? Uh, it is, and that's and that's where you you come back to uh, Biden's agenda. Even if he finds a way to pass his agenda, he is facing rising inflation, labor dislocation, shortages, higher taxes, capital costs, the potential for um, stagflation. I mean, with all these uh, uh, with all these uh, proposed tax increases, and consumer sentiment is running against him right now. Well, you know what got my attention, Sidney? There's eighty billion dollars in there to hire. A whole lot more IRS agents. Because <laughs> why not? We got to go ahead no, and do they're it. Really that. Gonna, they're really going to crack down on small businesses, I think. But have they done a good job on messaging? The White House. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the White House is doing the best job they can with regards to messaging. The issue is with the infighting. The major difference between Republicans and Democrats is that everyone infights. The Republicans just do it quietly. Unfortunately, Democrats are just very loud in public about it. But at the end of the day, whether or not there's a Republican or a Democratic majority, there's infighting and they're trying to work it out. They need to work it out because America needs to actually deal with the infrastructure issues that we have, and it's only going to compound itself. We also have the money to do it, be able to do it. We just need to go ahead and work out the deal. Has, has Biden lost his political? Capital. His numbers are about 43% right now, Joe. Yeah, I think the president needs a win. You know, and one of the criticisms, even though the White House has been very engaged in this, Biden, as a long term member of the U.S. Senate, has said before he never liked to have his arm twisted by a president when he served in the Senate. And so there's a little hesitation, I think, on the part of the president to do that with uh, members of Congress. I okay. think the time has come for that. Okay, we're going to move on. We just started to talk about the supply chain crisis. It's huge. Well, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of media coverage about what's called the great supply uh, chain disruption and that we're experiencing not only in the United States, but really across the world. And, uh, you know, the best way to get people talking about them is you ask them about rental car opportunities or lack of opportunities. Or but inventory. There was a, or inventory. But there was a story in the Los Angeles Times about a father and his two kids went to, they wanted to go to Disneyland. They were going to seek, uh, get, get a compact car and they ended up with a van that was filled with marijuana and cigarettes. And so that's, uh, that's kind of where, that's kind of what we're seeing. Trip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of an example of what's going on with the supply chain uh, disruption. I guess you could be entrepreneurial more. Um, uh, but but yeah, there. I, I think if you look at the supply chain disruption, a couple of things to look at. One is obviously COVID. Uh, COVID's impacted plants in Asia, which has caused problems and shortages with semiconductors, right. which is a key component of cars. Uh, we see a labor shortage, which we've discussed on the show several times. I mean, a lot of workers don't want to go back to work because of infection. Uh, that, that they may get from COVID, and then there's a lack of childcare as well. And then, you know, finally, one thing that we don't really talk about is severe weather. Uh, the, the wildfires that we see out west are preventing trains from transporting uh, supplies to the eastern part of the state. And, uh, and Hurricane Ida, for example, wrecked almost a quarter million dollars, a quarter million cars. So it's a, it's a real challenge on multiple fronts. Nelson, you've studied this problem. Yes, I, when you look at the intricate global manufacturing supply chains, they were really made possible by the security overwatch of the U.S. Navy in the post-Cold War era. Now that the Cold War is over, 
The U.S. has begun to back away. You had the Great Recession that hammered the financial markets. Now the pandemic, which is accelerating a decades-long process overnight. Uh, in the U.S., you know, we'll hoard the toilet paper for a while. We're going to be okay. We have the energy. We are not an importer-export-led economy. Who's going to have the problems long-term uh, will be those countries who are led, who are export or import-led uh, economies. They're going to have the, the trouble, not here in North America. Some countries... But they will, are saying if you, you, you want to buy Christmas uh, gifts, you, mm -hmm. you better start buying now, correct, Sydney? Right, yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that they actually said. I mean, even Steve Madden has moved, I believe, some of his manufacturing from Asia and actually to Brazil and Mexico because it, he thinks it's going to be easier, rightfully so, right? The corporation thinks it's going to be easier to get to North America and to America. So they've said you better start buying now. There are going to be a lot of unhappy kids at Christmas and during Hanukkah who are not going to get the gifts that they want simply because their parents, not because they didn't try to buy them, but just because there's going to be a shortage of supply. And I think the most important part that we need to take, about, take away from this is that the supply chain has had fissures. We've seen that in the pandemic. It's actually been you know, exacerbated. We need to figure out what we're going to do for the next pandemic. It may be 100 years from now, but we need to take the lessons learned from this and try and figure out how we can go ahead and but, state that. But we're having a shortage of chips, too, for cars and other things, correct? And, and, and frankly, it could impact the military a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, auto manufacturers reported large numbers of the vehicles just simply parked, waiting for the chip to arrive so can finally be installed and make the car work. You know, this it's interesting. This is really the point of evolution in the global economy where real-time delivery, taking all of the inefficiency out of manufacturing, but the problem is it creates a greater fragility in terms of interruptions to the supply. You talked about natural disasters. I mean, this has just sort of a, been an exacerbating feature. We'll have to see. And the thing to remember, you know, the United States is 5% of the world's uh, population, but it's 20% of the consumer culture. When the Chinese finally have a 400 million person middle class, the kind of demand for consumer goods in this in this world will be far greater than it is now. These disruptions could be really problematic in that environment. Jay, final thoughts, my friend. Well, so, then you can jump in. So, so I, I mean, look, I think there's a bipartisan opportunity for Democrats and Republicans to focus on uh, manufacturing here back in the United States. And one of the things the Biden administration has been talking about is making sure that semiconductors now are manufactured here and not in China. And I hope that places like North Carolina, where we got a, a great talent and natural resources, that we can do the same. So I think there's a real opportunity from the pandemic. Nelson, close us out in about 20 seconds. This era of economic globalism and these very intricate supply chains is over. We're moving to a new era. You're not going to have these types of, of connections. They're not going to work in the, in the future we're heading into. Okay, I want to change topics one more time and talk to Sydney about the SNAP program. They got an increase, a permanent increase this, uh, this week. Yeah, so President Biden increased the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP, to 25%. This is the largest investment and the largest uh, amount of money that, of, that since the program actually began. Um, it's important to note that it had not been reviewed since 2006, right? So we all know when we go to the grocery store, food has obviously increased since 2006, and especially during the pandemic. There was a temporary increase to 15%. That is actually going to expire now, but today 42 million more North, uh, Americans will actually have access to um, more money for food. That goes from an average of $121 per person to $157 per person and allow individuals to actually buy healthier foods instead of the processed foods that are significantly cheaper. But when you're living on a shoestring budget, it makes it very difficult for you to be able to feed your family and yourself with regards to nutritional food. Nelson, a lot of families do depend on this, but are we becoming uh, very dependent on, in all realms and in a lot of different ways on the government? 
Well, we are. Um, the, the problem the Democrats have is they want more entitlement programs. This $3.5 trillion uh, proposal will double the size of the federal budget down the road. It's not fully paid for even with massive tax increases. You have the Social Security Trust Fund and Medicare Trust Funds that are running out of money this decade and in the following decade. And a lot of Americans agree with what uh, Joe Manchin said this week when he said, I cannot accept our economy or basically our society moving towards an entitlement mentality. And I don't believe that America can afford it. Jay, I think you may disagree with that. Yeah, Nelson's really on message today. Look, I think if we bring it back to the SNAP program, as, uh, as, as Sydney said, uh, the program has not been reevaluated for a number of years. This is the first increase since 2006. I think, uh, I think more importantly, this was actually a product of the 2018 Farm Bill that had bipartisan support, and so it was a necessary increase. And I think that increase that we forget the impact of it is going to uh, combat poverty, deal with hunger issues, and deal with food insecurity. But most importantly, it's going to increase the overall well-being of these families and our kids. Joe. Yeah, there are a lot of issues associated with health and nutrition. We, we have a problem some places in North Carolina, rural North Carolina, there's a desert of good providers of food for families there too. Th this is interesting as we talk about the complexity of a global economy. Getting something to eat is a pretty basic thing that a, every human being needs. We really need to focus on this infrastructure, figure out the right way to do it. I, I think you try to strike a healthy balance between creating a, a, a mentality where people feel like this is being provided for them, but there's clearly some weakness in the system that we need to address so that families do have access to high-quality food that's affordable. Cindy, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, please. I challenge all of us at this table to eat off of $157 a month. Right. There you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I want to go to the most underreported story of the week, Joe. Interestingly enough, a copy of the United States Constitution, they printed 500 of these things for the original Constitutional Convention back in 1787. Only 11 remain. Ten of them are held by institutions, uh, museums and such. One was purchased by a, a gentleman named Howard Goldman back in 1988 for about $165,000. His widow is now going to have it put up for auction. They think it could bring $20 million for this printed copy of the U.S. Constitution. I'm not entirely sure what you would do with a Are copy of it. it? Well, <laughs> it I, like it's not is. like the kind of thing you just show to people, <laughs> fold it up and put it in your wallet and say, hey, you want to see my copy of the Constitution? So, but I'm sure a collector somewhere will pay for it and, and preserve it in an appropriate way. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Sydney? Um, my, under, my underreported is actually, we've heard a lot about vaccine mandates with regards to the healthcare industry. A lot of individuals were really worried because it's already overly strained that workers would quit their jobs. And a lot of workers said that they would. What we actually have is proof now that many of those workers who said they quit their job are actually getting vaccinated. The proof is in Novent Health right now. Um, in North Carolina, we, they have 15 systems across the state. Uh, 100, and they made the news this week because I think 106 75 of their unvaccinated um, employees were fired. But what was underreported is that out of the 35,000 employees that they have, 99% of them complied and are vaccinated. Should companies compel their employees to get vaccinated? Do you think, and governments do that? I mean, I think that if you are in the healthcare and you're a forward-facing industry and you're with the health and you are dealing with healthcare, I do not want a nurse who is unvaccinated to potentially go into immunocompromised individuals. So I think that we need to look at specific sectors where there's a higher risk, and so I support those. With regards to small businesses and what they choose to do with their employees, I think they should be encouraged to do so. But definitely at this point, I don't think that it's necessary that we actually enter into mandating every single person to get Jay. it. Jay. 
So my underreported story of the week is uh, Robert Kagan, a Brookings Institution fellow and a lifelong neoconservative. Mark, you and I will have to have a debate about conservative <laughs> versus neoconservative. Uh, authored a remarkable op-ed piece in the Washington Post that lays out the threat of Donald Trump and uh, Trumpism. And his opening, opening op-ed piece, which is quite lengthy, says the United States is heading into the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence. And so whether you agree that Trumpism is overblown or not, it's certainly worth a read. Well, Trump and Kagan clashed on interventionism, and, and there's never been a war that Kagan didn't want to get us into. Nelson? Uh, the U.S.-U.K. submarine deal with Australia has been well reported. What's underreported is first the deal includes long-range Tomahawk cruise missiles and extended-range air-to-surface missiles. This creates a strategic challenge to China's economy, which is dependent on the shipping lanes and is a check on their ability to project power in the region. Uh, second, uh, many Southeast Asian nations are privately pleased to see a renewed security commitment in the region by the Americans uh, and the British. And third, alliances like AUKUS, the Quad, the Five Eyes Council are now as important, if not more important, to the United States than NATO. Did this actually start under Trump? It did. Uh, the, the, the review of the submarine Trump. deal uh, started uh, in, in Trump's... Um, during Trump's presidency as the U.S. began to reach out and think more broadly about their strategic interests in the region. There was a diplomatic faux pas about this, though. The French were pretty upset. Well, the French were upset. The French always get upset, and they always whine about they pulled, things. They pulled their ambassador for a time. They pulled their ambassador, but what is key is the U.S. and the French are cooperating in Africa on the disruption of terrorist networks, even today as we speak in special operations. They're working actually very closely uh, behind the scenes under the radar. So all is forgiven by the French? Eventually it will be. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, my friend? Who's up? Women in politics. Iceland becomes the first nation in Europe to have a female majority legislature after a result of elections, a centrist coalition there. Uh, the people of Iceland felt as though the uh, government had done a good job through COVID-19. We have Nevada as the first state in America that had all uh, female majority legislature. So maybe this is a trend. Well, uh, it is a trend, isn't it? Because I, women are more electable than men now. Don't, I, don't you think? I mean, actually, that is true. I, I, I think women are easier to work with as legislators. Okay. <laughs> so I, get ha I get half the votes at this stage. <laughs> down. Who's down? Moderate Democrats. Uh, what, what are now what used to be called liberal Democrats, called progressive Democrats, are saying that the term should not be moderate. When you refer to a centrist Democrat, it should be centrist because they don't want the moniker of moderate to make it seem like they're moderate. Explain that to me again, please. <laughs> <'Cause that's exhausting. laughs> it's trillion, not billion. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sydney, who's up and who's down uh, this week? Who is up are the prices of homes in the U.S. They're at an all-time high, 19.7% higher in July, and once again, posting the biggest jump in over 30 years. Um, who is down, unfortunately, is the congeniality at school board meetings. They have reached a fever pitch with protests all the time, and I think that there are going to be long-term effects about who's willing to actually step forward and run for a school board. Okay. Who's up and who's down this week, Jay? So uh, Police Chief Eddie Buffalo, a former correctional officer, former North Carolina, current North Carolina National Guard and interim city manager and police chief of Elizabeth City has been appointed by Governor Cooper as a new head of Department of Public Safety, replacing Eric Hooks. In his position, he's going to oversee the State Highway Patrol, SBI Highway Patrol, and North Carolina National Guard. Can't think of a better person uh, qualified to lead that agency, but uh, Chief, chief Buffalo is up. And who's down? 
Uh, former Governor Pat McCrory, uh, the North Carolina Insider revealed this week that there are a host of current and former state legislators backing Congressman Ted Budd's campaign. Uh, Senator Berger has not endorsed in that campaign, but he is hosting a fundraiser for Budd's campaign. And Budd has been endorsed, as we know, by Donald Trump. Uh, McCrory has also been attacked by Mark Walker this week and the Club for Growth that's also backing uh, Bud uh, because McCrory has lost multiple campaigns. Are you and the Club that for Growth, the Club for Growth is running ads, I mean, constantly on Fox News. I know you're watching. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> who's up? Who's who's up? Uh, NC State Chancellor Randy Woodson. Not for winning the Textile Bowl or receiving a $1.5 million bonus for which he and Susan are donating to student scholarship. Woodson is up because he has positioned NC State uh, to serve the long-term interests of our state in some very unique ways, and he is absolutely one of the best chancellors in America today. Who is down? Chairman Xi. The Chinese leader used to make at least one overseas visit a month, sometimes even more than that. Uh, he has not traveled outside of China in the last 20 months. COVID is not the reason for this. Xi, who is trying to embody Mao these days, is in trouble with the Chinese Communist Party. By the way, have we seen any polls on that McCrory primary? And who do you expect on the Senate, uh, on the Democratic side to emerge? I have not. I have not seen any polls um, on the primary side, uh, but Justice uh, Beasley came out with a poll that polled kind of her biography with Jeff Jackson's biography, the state senator from, um, with, with the former chief justice that had her up ahead. But I still, there's a large group of voters that are undecided in the Democratic primary, so we'll have to take a wait and see. Okay. Headline next week, Joe. Democrats, House and Senate, moderate and progressive come together, but are there deeper fissures in the Democratic Party? They passed both bills? I think something get work, gets worked out on both, both issues. Okay. To date, nothing so far. Okay, so, headline. Uh, Berger, Moore, and Governor Cooper try to work out a deal with the budget that all of them can live with. Will they live with it? I think so. Uh, Jay? Well, that's my headline. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> this is what we call pivot. <laughs> pivot. <laughs> Quickly. Um, Mick, Mick, <laughs> Mick Jagger decides he's going to buy a house in, Rale in, in Charlotte after not being spotted, after being spotted in the bar by himself. Headline next week, please. Well, that's what I was going to say. General Assembly and Governor strike a budget deal. But then again, I'm always the optimist. <laughs> I think we've got to get a budget deal. Great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hill. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.